I do think that there is a pattern there that can be discerned. And, and to your original question, I think it is quite revealing that you have this unanimity on the court on this question that would strike you know, many people outside the legal profession or outside of these elite circles as being quite surprising. Welcome back to Runnymede Radio. I'm Christopher Kinsinger. Joining me today on the podcast is Professor Stephen Penny of the University of Alberta's Faculty of Law, one of Canada's leading scholars on criminal law and criminal procedure. In today's episode, Stephen and I discuss recent Supreme Court of Canada jurisprudence on the guarantee against cruel and unusual punishment in answer to his question, how much liberalism is too much? Professor, welcome to Ready Mead Radio. Happy to be here. So we're talking today about Section 12 of the Charter, which guarantees a right against cruel and unusual punishment. And earlier this year, you wrote an op-ed for our friends over at The Hub on how the Supreme Court of Canada has approached uh, this issue of cruel and unusual punishment. And your piece poses this really interesting question of how much liberalism is too much in this regard. So when you use this term liberal, what precisely are you referring to? Are you using this in a partisan sense or in more of a philosophical sense? Uh, definitely the latter. I certainly don't mean it in a partisan sense. So you know, very loosely, I would you know, use that word liberal uh, in its sort of classical philosophical sense, as you alluded to. So broadly speaking, the liberal tradition of moral and political philosophy, as well as law, you know, perhaps best exemplified by John Stuart Mill. And in the context of criminal justice specifically, I really mean a system that prioritizes individual autonomy and liberty and that requires any state-imposed limitations on those interests to be, you know, very carefully tailored to achieve concrete instrumental goals, you know, most obviously public order and public safety. Mm -hmm. So... You argue, you know, building out from this definition of liberalism, that liberal approaches to justice, specifically criminal justice, have proven to be historically unpopular. Why do you think that this is? Well, I think that the liberal approach to criminal justice, which you know really focuses on individual responsibility, uh, procedural due process, and you know, giving even offenders uh, as much freedom as, and dignity as is compatible with that sort of safe and well-functioning society, that approach is not especially compatible with what I think is our evolved psychological nature, especially as that nature is embodied in, in most cultures that are, have ever existed. So for example, there's lots of evidence that humans are kind of genetically and culturally primed to prioritize norm enforcement and things like community cohesion, and they favor those interests and preferences over the sort of liberal values of individual responsibility, procedural fairness, and concerns about disproportionate or excessive punishment. So, you know, another way of saying that is that, you know, when we see someone violate a, a fundamental cultural norm, say, you know, a, a violent offense or one involving, you know, the taking of, of property, uh, especially if it involves, you know, substantial harm, our individual and kind of group instinct is to, to seek retribution against that person or even 
against that person's, you know, kin group or family mm -hmm. or associates. And that is often going mm -hmm. to be our instinct, kind of regardless of the degree of individual moral culpability associated with their conduct. It's interesting because it seems that when we think about liberalism in this sense, that it's difficult to track these, um, these objections to liberal conceptions of justice onto a, uh, an ideological um, uh, framework, or at least an ideological spectrum. And so on one of our previous episodes of the podcast, we had uh, your colleague, Professor Gerard Kennedy and Mark Mancini on to talk about the fraught attempts to impose these sort of labels, liberal, conservative on Supreme Court of Canada justices. And one of the comments that they made was about how, in some respects, those who we might sometimes be inclined to describe as quote unquote conservative judges in the sense that they prefer rules and order and these sorts of things actually tend to track more with uh, liberal conceptions of justice when we think about this from a rights-based point of view. Uh, so when we're thinking about these, these issues um, kind of broadly in a, in a juridical sense, uh, how, how do you think these competing, uh, perhaps values isn't the right word, but these at least competing uh, instincts can, can play out when we're approaching uh, questions of criminal justice? Well, you know, I think you've sort of hit the nail on the head in, in sort of alluding to this tension between, you know, the need for order, a rules-based order for you know, ultimately, you know, a safe and prosperous um, and healthy society and community, and a concern about, you know, to put it simply, you know, the protection of individual rights and prioritizing individual freedom uh, with respect to, you know, the collectivist attempts to, to coerce and to exercise sort of state power to, to limit people's uh, freedom of choice and, and freedom to pursue their version of the good life. And, and I think, you know, we see that play out in the jurisprudence and on sort of apex courts like the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, precisely in terms of the, the dynamic that you've mentioned. So just to take one example, the, the recently departed Justice Russell Brown from the court, often characterized as mm -hmm. a conservative in many respects, appointed under the Harper administration, uh, had a very you know, libertarian, uh, not only liberal, but I would go so far as to say libertarian approach to criminal justice, at least in terms of the, the regulation of police powers and the scrutiny that judges mm -hmm. um, would you know, provide to uh, the police in protecting individual rights under the charter in the investigative stage of the criminal justice process. He's probably the most you know, protective judge in the modern era of those interests. Uh, yet at the same time, obviously somebody who's concerned in other respects for what we might label as more conservative uh, values um, in terms of public order. And I want to return to, to some of these themes later on when we start talking about specific rulings that have come out in recent years from the Supreme Court regarding Section 12 and the unanimity that we have seen in some cases from the court on these cases and whether or not that surprises you. But returning for a, a moment to this conceptual question about what constitutes a liberal justice system, are there specific conditions that you see as being necessary for the preservation of a liberal justice system? Yeah, I think it requires you know two things. 
Uh, the first is that, you know, the people in charge, you know, the state, the government, the police, the prosecutors, the courts, they have to work collectively to ensure that there's a reasonable degree of public safety and, and general social order, you know, such that, you know, ordinary people perceive that there's a, a relatively minimal risk that they're going to be victimized or members of their families or communities are going to suffer from victimization through crime. And, you know, after about 30 plus years of, of doing this pretty well uh, in our country and, and many comparable nations, I think we're currently seeing a pretty precipitous decline on this front, which is pretty concerning. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think if left unaddressed, poses a pretty serious threat to the liberality uh, of our system. But perhaps we can, you know, get into that uh, uh, down the road. The second thing I think is really critical for the maintenance of a liberal criminal justice system and, and for people to accept and allow it to coexist, even if it's kind of an uncomfortable, uh, intense relationship with our kind of baseline psychological and cultural preferences, is to recognize that retribution, right, the instinct for inflicting suffering or punishment on those deserving of it, is a legitimate, at least in some circumstances, a legitimate response to serious wrongdoing. Now, of course, you know, in a liberal criminal justice system or norm enforcement regime, retribution mm -hmm. really has to be grounded in and proportionate to the offender's you know, individual moral culpability. Uh, liberalism, I don't think, is compatible with either sort of notions of collective punishment or unrestrained vengeance, but I do think it can coexist with legitimate dessert-based retribution. On this point, you're, you know, what you're getting at is the need for a sort of balance uh, between these different uh, competing interests. And you note that there is a certain level of uh, discomfort in, in how balancing that, that this is not a difficult task. And so it really seems to me underscoring that however we answer these questions, it requires that we sort of go beyond the platitudes that we often see perhaps at the more extreme ends of the political spectrum, right? Where we tend to see on the one hand, sort of the uh, the abolish prisons movement. And on the other extreme, we have this incredibly uh, um, ex pronounced on crime, lock them all up. But, but right. really what you're getting at here is that when faced with these challenges in the real world, their serious interests, uh, the, the more kind of liberal individualist interests and the collectivist uh, interest and the need for retributive punishment and all these things. And somehow we have to find a way to balance them. So this is a good segue into talking about how these have been applied in the real world, which is what your piece in the hub uh, largely concerned is thinking about how these questions have been answered in recent cases by the Supreme Court. And so as noted, you specifically address section 12 of the charter, the right against cruel and unusual punishment and on this point, you you argue that the Supreme Court, uh, in some of its recent cases, has got the balance wrong. You're especially critical of the court's unanimous 2022 decision in the Queen and Bissonnette, which essentially held that de facto uh, life without parole sentences violate Section 12. So why do you think, not only why do you think the court got it wrong in this case, but why do you think the balance was not adequately struck? Yeah, well, it may seem a bit presumptuous or, or even foolhardy of me to take issue with such an emphatic, unanimous decision of our high court. But I do think that the court got it wrong in that decision. And 
I think it's because it didn't give sufficient credit to ordinary people's legitimate desires for harsh retributive punishment. Again, for those who are arguably deserving in the moral philosophical sense of that kind of punishment. And I think it's important, you know, we don't maybe want to get too much into the weeds of the details of the Bissonnette decision or the particular law that's now been struck down. Uh, but I do think it's important to understand that the law that the court did strike down in Bissonnette was pretty restrained and moderate. It didn't require judges under any circumstances to impose, mm -hmm. you know, consecutive periods of parole ineligibility for multiple murderers. In other words, this idea that the sentencing judge could impose what is in effect, as you put it, a de facto sentence of life without parole was not mandatory. It only gave judges the option of imposing such a sentence when it was necessary to craft a fit and proportionate sentence under the criminal codes you know, uh, well-understood sentencing principles. So because this sentencing option wasn't mandatory, judges were never forced to sentence someone to life without the possibility of parole where it wouldn't be appropriate to do so, where that person was not deserving, in the judge's view, of such punishment, and where such punish punishment would be incompatible with or would conflict with, you know, any of the sentencing principles set out in the criminal code. But despite that fact, right, despite that this was merely an option or sentencing alternative, the Supreme Court unanimously concluded that because this sentencing option existed merely as a possibility, in other words, someone could be sentenced to life in prison without any realistic possibility of ever being released on parole, that the provision was intrinsically Right, inherently cruel and unusual, mm -hmm. and therefore violated Section 12. And I guess, you know, that, that position, right, the idea that this is by definition a grossly disproportionate sentence as applied to, to anyone under any circumstances is something that I just disagree with. I don't think that most Canadians share that moral intuition. And, you know, we can talk about this further, but I don't think it's a moral intuition or a moral preference that ought to be imposed by an unelected court on our elected representatives as expressed through the democratic parliamentary process. And I want to return to that point in, in you know, toward the end of our discussion. But if we can kind of zero in for a moment on this point that you raise, which is that they were de facto uh, life without parole sentences. And what you're emphasizing here is that these were not required life sentences. They simply granted a discretion, as you note, uh, to, to impose those sentences where a judge saw fit. But I, I wonder if the converse, if uh, we wanted to look at this from the other point of view, is that at the end of the day, uh, it is still possible that someone such as Mr. Bissonnette will serve an entire life sentence, that they will enter uh, prison as of their, uh, well, likely before their conviction, but and they will uh, almost certainly end up dying in prison as well. So is there a sense in which are we, are we splitting hairs here over the distinctions? Do you think those distinctions matter if we see in these individual cases that justice is being done? 
Well, it depends on your perspective, right? If you hold as the, you know, the Supreme Court did, that this is an intrinsically cruel or inhumane form of treatment or punishment, right? That, that every offender deserves at least a theoretical possibility of being paroled, right? That the mere existence of this as a sentencing option is an affront to civilized norms, right? And it's sort of a, you know, a humane approach to criminal justice. Then I think it follows logically that that sentencing option shouldn't exist, right? If it truly is intrinsically cruel and unusual, mm. then why even have it as a sentencing option? So that's the logic behind the Supreme Court's opinion here, right? But of course, that logic hinges on an acceptance that this moral intuition, this moral preference, this idea that life without the possibility of parole is always unacceptable. Uh, even if we know it's inevitably going to occur in some instances, right? There are many offenders who, because they commit their offense later in life and receive the minimum punishment of 25 years, are very unlikely to, to have the opportunity to apply for parole. Or more commonly, there's a pragmatic realization that some offenders, you know, the Paul Bernardos of the world, are never going to be released, mm -hmm. um, at least not fully. Um, despite you know current uh, news events respecting uh, his reclassification to a uh, uh, a, a less restrictive uh, facility, so so that's really the you know the hinging point here, right? Do we agree? Is there a sufficient consensus in Canada that life without parole is in fact intrinsically cruel and should never be imposed as an option? And I guess I would ask, you know, going back to the actual example of Alexandre Bissonnette, you know, whether or not mm -hmm. that makes any sense, right? So to, to remind perhaps um, your listeners, you know, this is the individual who burst into a mosque in Quebec City with a semi-automatic rifle, and he killed six mm -hmm. worshippers in what you might call a spasm of kind of premeditated hatred. Now, does someone like him deserve an opportunity for release after spending you know, less than 50 years in prison. Well, you know, I think it depends on your sort of moral, religious, um, you know, beliefs, opinions, instincts, intuitions. And I think a great many people would say, no, that's, that's an acceptable, in fact, it may even be an appropriate mm -hmm. response on the part of the state that does inflict suffering. There's no doubt about mm -hmm. it. And we have to be cognizant of that. But at the same time, one wonders, given that this is a constitutional case, whether or not um, you know, forbidding Parliament from making such mm -hmm. a sentencing option available is something that the court ought to be in the business of doing. And I would answer that question in the negative. Well, it raises this interesting question that I think you're driving at, where if we're unable to impose a sentence of this sort for someone like Mr. Bissonnette, when will we be able to impose it at all? If we can't impose it in this sort of extreme case, then where does this logic lead, which is a question that you've posed? So not to put you on the spot with this one, but do you have concerns about where this is leading, right? Where, where this, this kind of thinking ends up? Do you think it's realistic that we could eventually see 
even the very idea of sentences in excess of 25 years, right? This idea of multiple, what we have deemed to be life sentences, multiple life sentences, even with the possibility of parole being struck down under Section 12. Well, it's it's possible. I don't know that it's it's likely. Um, you know, from a, a fairly strict doctrinal reading or interpretation of the Bissonnette decision, uh, the court did not go that far. In fact, it it sort of hinted that Parliament still retained considerable flexibility to to lengthen mm-hmm. or enhance sentences for murder or for people convicted of multiple murders. Not to the point where obviously it would result in a de facto life sentence without the possibility of parole, but even beyond the 25-year maximum period of parole ineligibility that we currently have. So that's, from one perspective, I think what you're suggesting is unlikely. But there's another way of thinking about it uh, that's been mooted, and that's the idea that sort of the signaling or expressive effect of this decision and others like it and how that sort of percolates down the chain in terms of the way that judges approach sentencing generally. And there is some evidence, I think, at least over the short term, that judges have read Bissonnette and other cases as signaling a greater reliance on concerns for rehabilitation and reintegration and downplaying concerns about retribution and deterrence. It's very hard to, you know, assess this or study this objectively or to predict you know, whether these trends are going to continue or intensify. But to the extent that Bissonnette is an example of sentencing jurisprudence that seeks to emphasize reintegration, rehabilitation, compassion, and one might even say forgiveness, mm-hmm. I think that does have the potential to move the pendulum Uh, a little bit down the ways on the continuum in favor of those kinds of interests at the expense of concerns for retribution and deterrence. Let's talk a little bit about those who would like to see the pendulum swing in the direction that you're concerned about uh, and who would like to see a greater emphasis on things like rehabilitation and, and even forgiveness. And on this, I note that you participated in a discussion on the Bissonnette ruling and section twenty, uh, section twelve, rather more broadly, earlier this year at Runnymede's annual Law and Freedom Conference, along with professors Lisa Kerr and Yuan Zhu, and actually we've posted a recording of that panel on uh, our podcast as a separate episode, so our listeners can go back and listen to that uh, if they'd like to have the context. But what would a defender of the Bissonnette ruling, such as Professor Kerr, say about the court's reasons in response to some of the concerns that you've raised here and how would you respond uh, to them? Yeah, as I understand Professor Kerr's position, it's essentially the same as the Supreme Court's. They, they both kind of assert that, as I mentioned earlier, life without parole is, in, is cruel and unusual by nature and is therefore always grossly disproportionate. And we use that gross disproportionality standard as the test for deciding whether a punishment violate Section 12 of the Charter. Uh, and, you know, as Chief Justice Wagner wrote in his reasons in Bissonnette, you know, he called this kind of sentencing option an affront to human dignity, you know, because it rejects the conviction that every individual is capable of repenting and re-entering society. Mm-hmm. Now, that's the kind of the primary focus here. It's this sort of categorical moral 
sort of expression that says this is just beyond the pale. We don't do this in a civilized society, almost by definition. Now, they also both refer, and by both, I mean both the Supreme Court of Canada and Professor Curran and others, to some of the more you know, instrumental harms of life without parole, including the psychological suffering that it supposed, supposedly causes offenders, and I think that's probably a legitimate point, as well as the risk that people with you know, nothing to lose because they're not eligible or never will be eligible for parole, and that these people are more likely to cause problems in the prison system. I'm not sure I agree with that as much. I think there are other mm -hmm. ways to provide incentives and deterrence for, for the, those inside the correction system other than the possibility of release. But again, at the margins, that may be a, you know, a secondary factor. So while I think these are valid points as far as they go, I guess I fundamentally disagree that the majority of Canadians or the majority of reasonable people agree mm -hmm. that life without parole is intrinsically cruel. Right? We talked about the Alexander B. Sinet case and there are others. And, and think as well about the period of time when this law was in effect and had been yet to be struck down. Well, the research that's been done by legal scholars shows that judges actually did impose consecutive periods of parole ineligibility in almost half of cases where that option was available. So those judges must not have considered life without parole to have been intrinsically cruel and unusual. If they had, they would have found it to be disproportionate and would not have imposed it. So, so I guess there's a lot of evidence that mm -hmm. this absolutist stance, that this is a form of punishment that's beyond the pale, is one that I think lacks um, you know, empirical support, it lacks popular support, and therefore I think is constitutionally suspect. In many respects, we're not just grappling here with normative questions, although they certainly are normative, but they're deeply moral questions in perhaps ways that we don't often see in legal disputes uh, as, as regularly as we would other types of normative questions, right? We're, we're dealing here with this question of what constitutes something uh, cruel and unusual that requires a certain baseline of morality. And, and we're seeing a divergence in this regard between, as you're, as you're basically saying, what perhaps your average citizen would think and, and how they have uh, expressed those views through our democratic institutions and what the courts think. And I want to ask a little bit about that divergence in, in a moment, but I, I first want to pose a question that uh, we've posed a few times now on this podcast, because this is actually the third time that we've discussed the Bissonnette ruling on Runnymede Radio. I mentioned most recently we discussed it with Professor Kennedy and Mark Mancini in a broader discussion on whether the Supreme Court of Canada is quote-unquote political. And then we also discussed the ruling uh, specifically last year in an episode with Carrie Sun and Professor Izu, who was on the panel with you at Law and Freedom. And one of the questions that I asked in both of these episodes concerned uh, the unanimity of the court's ruling. And so this ties in a little bit to what I'm saying here about uh, the ways in which the court is perhaps diverging uh, from other democratic institutions. But do you think it's significant or noteworthy that the Bissonnette ruling was unanimous, especially as we've seen a seemingly uh, decreasing number of unanimous rulings by the court in the Wagner era in what some journalists have tried to peg as sort of American style blocks emerging at the Supreme Court. We have such a deeply 
controversial and moral question. And in you know other similarly uh, controversial cases, the court has been quite split. And yet here we see all nine judges uh, arriving at the same conclusion. What do you make of that? Yeah, that's it's a really fascinating development. Uh, one that you know I don't think I would have predicted, but in retrospect, I think it, it exemplifies this split that you refer to between you know, for lack of a better label, you know elites, especially legal elites, and, you know, ordinary people, non-elites, because you have this sort of crystallized unanimity, right? Judges, which in many areas of the law have divergent views, and, and probably it's fair to say divergent, you know, ideological or political or moral preferences. But on this issue, they seem to be of one view, and they seem to be very emphatic about the, you know, the moral clarity of that view and its righteousness. Yet at the same time, we have considerable evidence to suggest that that view is very much rejected, <laughs> at least in the particular facts of this case, by many, many, many other people. So how do we explain this divergence? Well, you know, one possibility or one way of thinking about it, you know, perhaps some of your listeners have heard of the acronym coined by the psychologist and anthropologist Joe uh, Henrich from Harvard. It's WEIRD. And the WEIRD stands for Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and Democratic. And it's, this phrase is used to describe the, the kind of psychological disposition that's disproportionately found in modern, Western, and one might even add liberal societies. Mm -hmm. But even within those societies like our own, you know, educational and economic elites tend to be weirder than their less educated and less wealthy peers. So weird people tend to be more liberally, liberal rather, uh, both I think economically and socially than non-weird people. And of course, these are, you know, idealized types and it's part of a continuum, et cetera. So for example, right, within weird circles, especially in the legal profession, there's a pretty robust consensus against capital punishment. Right? If you walk into a law school classroom, we have a, a group of law professors or you know, a meeting of CBA practitioners, you might find a few dissenting voices, but vast majority of people, I would predict, are going to say, oh, of course, we shouldn't have capital punishment in Canada. Yet polls consistently show that a majority of Canadians still favor capital punishment and would like to bring it back, even though it was abolished way back in the mid-1970s. So one way of thinking about the Supreme Court's decision in Bissonnette is it's kind of a, an example of weird morality or weird psychology on steroids. So hmm. you know, I'd be willing to make a sizable bet that a high percentage of Canadians have no problem with giving judges a power to impose life without parole for at least some multiple murderers. Yet here we have the Supreme Court of Canada saying, no, even for someone like him, this is, this is simply unacceptable. It's interesting because you're obviously a law professor at one of the most prestigious law faculties in the country. So in some ways, uh, it might be expected that you fall into this weird category that you've just laid out. Uh, and yet you're, you're pushing back against uh, what uh, other members of this weird cohort uh, might otherwise say. And so I'm curious, as a law professor, when these issues come up in your class, uh, do you, do you have, what, what are you seeing from your students here? Are they, 
Uh, are they surprised perhaps to hear you maybe talk about uh, some of these issues uh, or, or do you see a little bit more of a, of a plurality within your own classrooms regarding some of these issues? Yeah, well, I think, you know, law students are, are pretty liberal and they're pretty weird. Um, but when it comes to questions of, of punishment, I still think you, you can attract some divergence, some degree of diversity in terms of people's ap approaches, because it is quite, you know, intuitive and instinctive and, and people tend to have, you know, strong views uh, on criminal punishment, uh, depending on their background, their psychological disposition, et cetera. So, you know, you can still generate some interesting debates and discussions on these points. But at the same time, I think uh, in my anecdotal experience, students have become more um, tolerant of um, the liberal approach to criminal justice and to punishment and more suspicious of state imposed punishment. In some ways, I think that's a good thing. In other ways, I'm a bit more skeptical or suspicious of that. But um, and th there's still, I mean, it's not, it's not a perfect divide. I think even within elite circles or more educated circles, um, you're going to have people who say, well, you know, maybe, maybe someone like Alexandra Bissonnette did deserve to be punished more harshly or excessively, or perhaps this law was not excessively uh, disproportionate or inherently cruel or unusual. Um, so I think that possibility exists. I wouldn't exaggerate the extent to which we can draw, you know, a firm binary line between weird or non-weird or, or what have you. But I, I do think that there's a pattern there mm -hmm. that can be discerned. And, and to your original question, I think it is quite revealing that you had this unanimity on the court on this question that would strike, you know, many people outside the legal profession or outside of these elite circles as being quite surprising. What then, when we look at this debate that has emerged within the jurisprudence of Section 12 of the Charter, this very moral question of what constitutes cruel and unusual punishment, what does this reveal more broadly about the role of courts within our constitutional order? Because this is an issue that we've sort of been circling around here. So I want to zero in on it as we start to conclude this conversation. Has the Supreme Court been consistent in this regard, in your view, in what it conceives of as its own constitutional role? Well, I mean, that's a very difficult question to answer, right? But um, I guess I'd, I'd respond by saying that for me, a healthy constitutional mm -hmm. order is one committed to finding you know, what you might call a sweet spot between protecting individual freedom in the you know, the liberal tradition on the one hand, and on the other hand, paying genuine respect to popular sentiment. That doesn't mean you always count how or defer to popular sentiment, but you have to respect that sentiment, especially when it's expressed uh, as through the democratic legislative process. So I'm not one of these, you know, constitutional theorists who believes that there's a singular grand interpretive theory of judicial mm -hmm. review that's capable of gauging whether the courts get this balance right. To me, mm -hmm. it comes down to case-by-case -case pragmatic judgment. Um, but applying that judgment, you know, my own personal way, I would say overall that the Supreme Court has done a decent job on Section mm -hmm. 12 cases um, historically. Um, so, for example, despite my criticism of Bissonnette, 
Um, the mandatory minimum jurisprudence that many of your listeners may be familiar with that the court has developed over the past mm -hmm. two or three decades is very controversial in some circles. But I think on the whole, it's pretty sound. Uh, so not to get into that issue in too much depth, but you know, just very briefly, you know, many mandatory minimum sentences, I think, fail to account for you know, what you might call the kind of irreducible complexity of, of sentencing you know, individual offenders for individual crimes. And as a result, you know, those mandatory minimums create a real risk that some people are going to be punished far more harshly than most ordinary people would expect if they were made aware of those unique individualized circumstances. So in striking down a lot of those mandatory minimums, I think what the court has done, or one way of thinking about what the court has done, is to kind of you know, reflect consensus moral principles, consensus fundamental values that may not have been translated very well or expressed very well through the democratic process and, and making them apparent, making them transparent and visible so we could see, okay, it wouldn't make sense to sentence this young offender who technically was in possession of a weapon, but one not one capable of causing any real damage to any person or property to mm -hmm. a minimum period of two or three or four or five years in jail. And while some people might still find that objectionable, that the court would strike down any expression of parliament's democratic will, I think it's actually pretty moderate and restrained given that fact, given the fact that mandatory minimums just completely eviscerate any possibility of individualized discretionary sentencing. But I would contrast that jurisprudence with Bissonnette, right? As I've talked about, right. The legislation right. that the court struck down in Bissonnette did not mandate life without parole. It merely permitted it. And so for me, declaring that the charter forbids parliament from even giving, giving judges this option is an example of you know, a kind of counter-majoritarian liberalism you know, run amok. Right? So concerns about you know, liberal judicial activism, I think in this case, those concerns are ones that I share. I do think, you know, maybe it's not the most mm -hmm. sophisticated or elegant way of putting it, but I do think that's what occurred in this case. And I think the, the court kind of figuratively, you know, kind of shoved its own elite moral preferences down the throats of ordinary people in a way that I think is objectionable. And of course, your preference would be to see parliament deal with these issues in, in consideration of these uh, moral preferences or the, these moral factors that, that you think are best suited to these more democratic institutions than judicial ones. So I want to conclude by asking uh, how you think Parliament should respond to recent jurisprudence regarding Section 12. What would your preference be to see how Parliament asserts its own will in this regard? Yeah, well, it, it, you know, not to hedge too much, but I think it depends on the issue. And um, mm -hmm. it's probably also going to depend realistically on, you know, the government that's in power and, and the sort of partisan affiliation of that government um, that, that's considering how to respond. Now, you know, it won't surprise anyone to hear that for the mandatory minimums that the Supreme Court has struck down uh, over the years, you know, I would be quite content if I were in the lucky position of advising the government or the prime minister or parliamentarians uh, to do nothing. I think that's, that's something mm -hmm. that the court was right to do. And uh, Parliament will hopefully in the future stay away from mandatory minimum sentences, especially because there are ways that 
governments and parliamentarians who are concerned about accountability in the criminal justice system and may even have legitimate concerns about undue leniency in sentencing in certain respects or, or you know, um, excessive inconsistency or unpredictability in the sentencing of certain types of offenders in certain circumstances, or those are very legitimate concerns, uh, that there are ways to very strongly constrain and direct sentencing judges to go in a certain direction without actually mandating 100% that they must impose a specific punishment. So for example, it'd be very easy, and this has been suggested by, by others, to say, okay, for this type of offense, in these types of circumstances, you have a minimum sentence of five years. So very strong signal, this is a very serious crime, we need to emphasize deterrence, retribution, et cetera. There's going to be a harsh punishment, whatever it is. But you have a safety valve. In exceptional circumstances that can be demonstrated and justified and reasons provided for the exception, you can deviate. And then I'll, that will be subject to appellate review, et cetera. So, so that's one way that Parliament could respond if it, it wishes to place its hand on the scale in terms of sentencing, which of course it's par Parliament's prerogative to do that, to express people's concerns about public safety, about violence, about increasing crime, about deterrence, et cetera. That's the direction that government wants to go. I think that there are you know, relatively straightforward, constitutionally um, sound ways of doing that. Now, as far as the sentencing of multiple murderers, uh, which, you know, is now defunct in terms of uh, the, the previous law struck down in Bissonnette. Well, as I mentioned earlier, um, it may not be a perfect solution, but I do think that the Supreme Court's reasons in Bissonnette did leave open considerable scope for Parliament, if it wishes, to allow judges to go beyond the current 25 years. There's no guarantee that that would pass constitutional muster, but there are certain passages in Bissonnette that suggest that there, there could be significant movement in that direction without violating Section 12. Well, Stephen, this has been a really fascinating discussion. It's one that we could no doubt uh, go on with for, for hours and hours, but I think that's a good place to bring it to a close. I want to thank you for taking the time to come on our podcast, and we look forward to continuing this discussion with you, not just on Section 12, but on other matters relating to criminal justice uh, more broadly in the future. And no doubt uh, we, we can expect to see you at future Runnymede Society events and hopefully back here on Runnymede Radio. Well, thank you so much for the invitation, uh, Chris. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for listening. Runnymede Radio is a program of the Runnymede Society, a nonpartisan organization of Canadian law students, lawyers, and legal scholars committed to the principles of constitutionalism, fundamental freedoms, and the rule of law. Our podcast is edited by Thomas Falcone, produced by me, Christopher Kinsinger. Our podcast sponsor is LexisNexis Canada. Follow us on social media and stay tuned for updates on the exciting events that our student chapters have planned for the upcoming school year. So long for now.